Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Amen. Those of you who have your Bibles here, you're welcome to open with me in Genesis chapter 19. Um, I've been sharing the last couple of weeks about Abraham's life, and uh, this is the last one. So uh, in uh, Genesis 19, it contains the well-known account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and um, Genesis 19 is all about, in, in many ways, God's judgment. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah sort of became a stereotype of those who receive God's judgment. And, um, but it's also about the warnings that precede God's judgment and how we respond to those. Now, I just want you to think for a moment. Just think to yourself. Have you ever received a warning that looking back, you wish you had heeded? Hmm? Just, I just want you to, if you can, come up with a specific warning that you received, maybe from a parent or a teacher or a just some other um, authority figure in your life, or even a friend that you didn't listen to and that you actually wish you had. Anyone, anyone, just put up your hand if, if there's anyone, if, you, if, if there is such a warning that you can think of. I'm sure if we think hard enough, most of us will be able to come up with something like that, right? And to a large extent... How we respond to the warnings in our life will determine the quality of our life. And it's, it's very, very important that we learn to respond correctly. Uh, Stephen Covey, he wrote a book called uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he says something very interesting in the book. He says, we cannot control what happens to us. We cannot always control what happens to us, but we can always control how we respond to what happens to us. He calls it the power of responsibility, the ability to respond. Okay? And I think that's a very important principle. God has given us responsibility. He's given us the ability to respond. And to a very large extent, I mean, the reality is we cannot control everything in our environment. We cannot control everything in our circumstances. We cannot control everything that happens to us. There's, there's actually very little that is under our control. There are some things. But the main thing that we can control is our response. We cannot, we cannot choose how other people treat us, but we can always choose how we respond to how they treat us, whether good or bad. We cannot choose what happens in the economy, but we can always choose how we respond to it. We cannot always choose what happens in our work environment, and we can't even choose how other people respond to it, but we can choose how we respond to it. We cannot choose our families, but we can always choose how we respond to them. And actually, this is an amazing power that God has given us, and, and, and uh, this, this power of responsibility. And it comes out very strongly in this passage. So I'm, I'm just going to discuss this passage in uh, Gen I'm just going to read it and then discuss it under three headings. Uh, firstly, the need for God's judgment. Secondly, different responses to God's judgment. And then finally, salvation from God's judgment. So let's just read. Uh, it's, it's quite a long portion, but it's a, 
It's a narrative. So um, if you want to, maybe you can just close your eyes and listen to the narrative and, um, and, and, and try and imagine it in your, in your head. So the, the context here is that, um, if you remember what I preached last week and so on, um, God came to Abraham and told him, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because there's been an outcry against them because of the oppression, because of the violence, because of the grievousness of their sin. And then, God, and then Abraham intercedes for Sodom, uh, for the city. And um, two of the angels go into Sodom, and it, it says, and the two angels arrived in, in Genesis 19 verse 1, arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You, will, you, uh, you can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will uh, spend the night in the square. Um, it's, uh, one of the reasons why they went was to go and investigate, um, sort of make it clear that they were thoroughly investigating the outcry against Sodom. And maybe that's why they wanted to stay in the, in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did, not, that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Um, And there's a lot of parallels between Lot's response to these men and Abraham's in the previous chapter. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so so we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. Sort of ominous, you know, he, he sort of knows what's coming. Um, and he wants to protect the men, so he shuts the door. And he said, "My friend, uh, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them, uh, uh, do what you like with them. Eesh. <laughs> But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat him worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house. Um, struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-laws thought um, that he was joking. With, uh, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. 
When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and, and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This, uh, this disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord to intercede for, for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says, And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when, the Lord, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So as I said, I just want to discuss this under the headings of the need for God's judgment, different responses to God's judgment, and then salvation from God's judgment. Now, as modern people and as a society that has one of its highest values as tolerance, we often cringe a bit at God's judgment, don't we? That's true. I mean, we value tolerance very highly. You know, human rights, everyone has rights and we must tolerate uh, one another's rights. But the, the problem is that tolerance, that, that value of tolerating everyone so easily becomes condoning everything. And the reality is even in a society like ours, which values tolerance very high, judgment is necessary. I mean, think about it for a while. Should we have tolerated the oppression of apartheid? Should we tolerate politicians stealing from the poor and giving to the rich? Should we tolerate the fact that every 26 to 36 seconds... A woman is raped in South Africa. Should we tolerate that? Of course not. Judgment is needed upon those um, sins and crimes in order to save the victims of them. Otherwise, there's no salvation. In other words, the point is without judgment, there's no salvation. The only way to save people is to judge the thing that is harming and oppressing them. In other words, 
God's judgment is an act of salvation and God's salvation is an act of judgment. The only way God can save is through judging. And that's why judgment is necessary. It's not just something that we should, you know, a necessary evil that we have to live with. When God judges, it's good. God's judgment always saves. It doesn't only condemn. It condemns the guilty, but it saves the innocent from the guilty. Always. And that was what was happening in, 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 in Sodom. If you just look at, at what's going on here, um, and, and at these, the men of Sodom, we, we clearly see the need for, for salvation. Firstly, we see that these strangers come to visit, and it was quite common, you know, for, for people, if they came to visit, to, to, it was expected for them to receive hospitality. But, but Lot is he's not a, a, a native resident of Sodom. But he runs to these guys. None of the citizens of Sodom go to them and offer them hospitality. Lot comes and offers them hospitality. If no one offered you hospitality, it was quite common that you would sleep in the, in the square or at least wait in the square for someone to offer you hospitality. If no one offered it, then you'd almost sleep in the square. But, but Lot runs to these guys and, and, and offers them hospitality. And then when they refuse, they say, we want to stay in the square. Obviously, they want to see what's going on in the city. And if the outcry against it is as bad as, as, as they've heard, Lot insists. He, he, as it were, imposes his hospitality on them. And they eventually give in. Why was he so insistent that they come under the protection of his roof? Because obviously he knew. He knew what regularly happened in the city of Sodom. What is being narrated here is not a, you know, a, a something that, 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 that was an unusual occurrence. It seems that it was a regular thing that when people came, visitors came, and visitors, obviously, if you're new to a place, you're very vulnerable. It was quite usual for the men of Sodom, it seems, to come together. And excuse me for being so blunt, but coming together and raping the visitors. And Lot knew that, and that's why he so hastily goes to them and says, Please, you know, come under, and insisted, you know, come under the protection of my roof. Um, there's another way in which we see it. The men of Sodom, and it says, notice here, it says, All the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old. Now, it's every, the whole geography and the whole demography, you know, the whole spectrum. The men from every part of the city, every area, all the men, it says, actually. All the men from every part of the city and from every age came together. And it was, this was not sort of just a few people involved in this. All the men in the city were involved in this. This was pervasive. This was something that everyone was involved in. They come, and, and notice, no one... No one calls them together. It's not like there's someone who blows a trumpet and says, da, 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 you know, let's come together and, 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 you know, violently abuse, you know, these visitors. No one had to call them. They just came because it's something that they regularly did. Can you see it? Can you start to see how bad this was? Then, I mean, Lot comes out and he shuts the door behind him so you can see, you know, you know, he knows what to expect. And he, and he pleads with him. He says, no, my friends. He even calls them my friends. 
And he says, do not do this wicked thing. And there's the warning that they receive. And not only do they not heed the warning, but they threaten Lot and say, we'll do worse to you than to them. And they start putting pressure on him. They start intimidating. They start threatening. And, and Lot, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a bit strange because there, there's sort of a mixture of virtue and vice from Lot's side here. Because on the one hand, he, um, he, he, he tries to protect these visitors at, at, you know, at the risk of his life, actually, which is quite noble and good. He mentions that his daughters had never slept with a man. And obviously in the um, sexual environment of Sodom, that was quite a feat, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> to, make, to make sure that your daughters remain virgins. Um, and he, he seems in, the, in those instances, and he even warns them, he says, listen, what you're doing, what you're about to do, what you intend to do is a wicked thing. All of those are good things. But then he goes and offers his virgin daughters to them as though that were not a wicked thing. There's a bit of a mixture there, you know, even, even from Lot. Now, I don't know whether he was so flustered by the threats and the pressure that he, he sort of, you know, tried to bluff his way out of it. But, but either way, what he, what he offered there was, was wrong. But, but notice their response. Notice their response. They reject his alternative. They say, no, we don't want your daughters. We want these men. What does that tell you about the sex that they want? It's not just that they have some sexual need that they want to fulfill. There's something a lot more specific going on here. A lot more sinister, a lot more violent. These men, I'm sure all of them in that era, in that society, would have had wives at home with whom they could have legitimately had sex. But that's not what they want. So we're not talking here about the fulfillment of a legitimate God-given need. We're talking about something a lot more sinister, a lot more evil, a lot more violent, a lot more abusive. And it's clear from the context, subtly, but quite clear, that this happened often. In fact, it happened all the time. And Lot knew it happened all the time, and he knew how to protect these people of it. Can you start to see now why God's judgment is necessary? Especially in the light of the response. And I'm, I'm going to um, say a bit more about their response in a while. So, um, this violent oppression and abuse of the vulnerable was just a specific instance of uh, an example of the things for which there was an outcry against Sodom. Let me just um, read that one verse again. Verse 13 says, The outcry to the Lord against its people, the people of Sodom, is so great that He has sent us to destroy it. And that word outcry literally means the oppressed, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the weak, crying out against their oppression, against violent abuse that is directed in, at, at them. And God hears those cries. Throughout history, God hears those cries. And He'll warn people, and He'll warn people, and He'll warn people to repent. But if they don't, He'll eventually come and judge in order to save. And that's why God's um, judgment 
is necessary. That's why God's judgment is needed. And then we see a couple of responses to, to God's judgment. I just want to highlight um, four responses that are very clear from the text. And what I want you to notice is that God's judgment never comes without warning. God always warns before he judges. Always warns. Even when he doesn't seem that way. Sometimes judgment seems to come very suddenly, very abruptly, very unexpectedly, but it never really does. There's always warning. And we need to learn to respond correctly. And, and, and you know, like I said, our response here and our ability to respond is not only a great gift from God when it comes to his warnings of judgment, but just in general in life. There's a saying, decisions determine destiny. Right? Decisions determine destiny. Your destiny is made up of the accumulation of the decisions you've made throughout life. You know, it's how you've responded to situation and choices. And, and that is the thing that God is holding before us and saying to us through this text. You need to make the right choices. You need to make the right decisions. You need to respond correctly, especially to God's warnings. So let's just look at a few uh, responses. The first response that we see is the response of the men of Sodom. How did they respond to Lot's warning that what they're about to do is a wicked thing? They responded with intimidation, right? They responded with intimidation. Um, and they both, through direct threats spoken to Lot, and indirect threats which they speak to one another about Lot, they try to intimidate him. I just want to take you to that because it's, it, this to me is such a, um, a, a clear and powerful study of, of intimidation. Let me just um, see here. Okay. Here we go. Verse 9. Genesis 19, verse 9. This is now after he said, um, don't do anything to these men for they've come under the protection of my roof. They say, get out of our way. Direct, you know, threat towards him. And then they, and, and this is often what people will do when they try and intimidate you. And, and the reality is, here's the reality. When we bring the warnings of the gospel to people, people will often respond in the same way. Remember, the, the gospel has warnings. Luke 3, verse 7 says, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist says to the Pharisees, who warned you, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a wrath to come. And there are warnings to flee from it. Okay? Um, so, it's, it, it says there in verse 9, they first threaten him, get out of our way, and then they turn to one another and they say, say to one another, and this is, this is typical of people intimidating, this fellow, and even just the word that they use to describe him, you know, is sort of dismissive, you know. This fellow um, came here as an alien. In other words, what are they doing? They're marginalizing him. He's an outsider. He's not one of us. He's different. And often people will do that to us, you know. When they try and intimidate and threaten us, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, sort of paint us as outsiders, as, as, as foreigners, as intruders, as it were. 
That's the same thing, for instance, just one example, that Potiphar's wife did with Joseph. Remember? Said, this Hebrew, you know, slave that you brought here, and now he wants to rule over us, and now he's trying to abuse me, you know, when she accused him of, um, of trying to um, sexually assault her. So, so, you know, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? In other words, he thinks he's better than us. Look at him. Look at how arrogant he is. Look at how proud he is. All he's doing is in love. He says, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He's trying, and yet they, they're painting him as this arrogant, judgmental outsider. And, and the reality is, very often, as Christians, we will be painted as judgmental. Now, I must just say, very often we as Christians are judgmental. Let's not, let's not say that we're always innocent. <laughs> Sometimes we are judgmental. Sometimes our approach to society is only condemning and never affirming. Often our approach to culture is only criticizing and never celebrating. You see, culture is a human construct. Humans create culture. Groups. Groups of humans create culture. And humans, two things we need to know about humans according to the Bible. Number one, we created in the image of God. Number two, we've fallen from the image of God. So number one, there's good. God's image in us. And even in fallen humanity, that image has been tarnished, but not totally destroyed. But it is tarnished, and it's sinful. So if humans both reflect and oppose the image of God through sin, then we should expect the same thing from human culture. There should be some things in all human cultures that reflect the image of God. But there should also things in all human cultures that are sinful and evil. And we shouldn't just focus on the one or the other. We should celebrate the image of God reflected in our culture and we should also oppose the sin and the harmful elements in our culture. We should do both. But if we only criticize, then people won't listen anymore. And people will only experience it. Then people start stereotyping us as judgmental. Okay, So we shouldn't be overly judgmental, but if we minister, if we are faithful witnesses of the gospel, the gospel itself contains implicit warnings. And people will feel judged by that. But then it's not us judging them, it's the word of God judging them. And we shouldn't feel bad when people call us judgmental, when we are just faithful witnesses of the gospel. And it's inevitable, people will. It's unavoidable. People in the world will always feel judged by us, even if we're not judgmental. Even if we're doing it in love, like Lot is trying to do it here. And we shouldn't allow that to prevent us from being faithful witnesses. Um, so, you know, they say uh, he wants to um, play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Now, we, we, you know, um, often people... F- play this guilt by association game. Oh, oh, you know, you, 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 we, we, uh, you know if, if you want to protect the ones that we want to abuse, then we'll abuse you too. We'll treat you the same. And, and, and you see this playing out in the political arena, you know, where, where the guys, um, the politicians who were corrupt, when other politicians started standing up against them, what did they do? They started persecuting them too. 
It's human nature. It's human nature. And um, so we, we, we see, see all of that uh, re, uh, doing and, uh, happening, sorry. And it says, and they tried to break down the door. So they weren't only threatening words, but they were threatening actions. They were coming as a mob, as a crowd towards him, saying, we're going to break down the door. And it says, they kept bringing pressure. It's not just they did it once. They kept doing it over and over again, repeatedly trying. And, and, and the devil will always try and wear us down with his pressure. He won't stop. He'll be relentless. And often, this kind of pressure is demonically inspired. But remember what the word says in the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And we must recognize that very often, people bringing the pressure are just the pawns being used by the evil one to try and bring pressure upon us. And we should respond um, in prayer. But... We can't be saved from judgment if we're not convinced that it, will, uh, that it will come. Only those who humbly accept the verdict against them can joyfully accept the pardon often offered them. So only the way to be saved is through pardon, through the forgiveness of sins, of crime, pardoning of crime. But you can only be pardoned of a crime that you actually admit, that you're actually guilty of. If you're not guilty of a crime, if you don't think you're guilty of a crime, you cannot be pardoned from it. Think of it another way. Um, think of a medical metaphor. You will not accept a cure for a disease you don't think you have. In other words, only if you honestly accept the diagnosis of your disease can you joyfully accept the cure that is offered to, to cure the disease. The medicine that's offered to cure the disease. And that's how it is with the gospel as well. So, um, the first response was the, the intimidating response of the men of Sodom. The second response was the, the response of Lot's sons-in-law. How did they respond? Lot comes to them and says, the city is about to be swept away. It's about to be judged by God. How did they respond? They think he's joking. Now, that tells us a lot about them as people. Because it says in Genesis 19 verse 13 that the outcry against the people of Sodom had become so great. It talks in, in the previous chapter, in, in, in chapter 18 verse 19, 20 and 21, it talks about their sin being grievous. And twice it mentions this massive outcry against them. In other words, if the outcry becomes so great... The oppression and the response and the outcry and the wailing against the oppression had become so great that it was obvious. In other words, the sin in the place was obvious. There was no way they could have missed it. Now, how do you live as a part of that society when that sin, the oppression, the violence, the abuse of the society is so obvious? The only way you can do it is either to be part of it or to make a joke of it. I mean, the media is very good at doing this. Whatever you can laugh at, you can accept. So sitcoms, for instance, are designed to make us laugh at things that the media wants us to accept. Because it's a small step from laughing at something to accepting it. 
And there are all kinds of alternative lifestyles, all kinds of sins, all kinds of perversions, all kinds of wickedness that the media gets us to laugh at. You know, make, and, and they make it, they're good at making it funny, making it hilarious. You know, and you watch those sitcoms and you find yourself laughing at stuff and you realize, but hang on, what am I laughing at, you know? Actually, this, this, is, this is presented in a very funny way, but, but actually it's, it's, it's quite disturbing or sad. But we laugh at it, and then the next thing we find ourselves accepting it. And that's what Lot's sons-in-laws were, were doing. And, and here's the problem. If you make a joke of sin, you'll make a joke of the judgment against sin. If you make a joke of sin in order to be able to live with it, you'll make a joke of the judgment that that sin deserves as well. And that's clearly what happened to them. And there are so many modern people who do that. If you come to them, if we come to them and we bring the warnings of the gospel, flee from the wrath to come, they'll make a joke of it. They say, ah, you know, you holier than thou Christians, or you, you know, you know, um, self-righteous, you know, nitpicking, don't, you know, impose your morality on us, or, you know, you guys are so, so laughable, you know, so regressive, you know, that all this morality, all this, you know, right and wrong is, is, you know, people just laugh it off. Many people cannot be serious about things that are serious. Because the reality, and, and, and to some extent it's understandable, because if we took seriously the things that were wrong with the world and the things that are wrong with us, it would be quite depressing. So it's easier to laugh about it. It's easier to, to joke it uh, and to laugh it off and to, to joke about it, like Lot's son-in-laws did. Then um, another response is Lot's own response. It says in verse 15, let me just um, read that. It says, With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your daughters here, uh, who are here, or you'll be swept away when this place is punished. And it says, When he hesitated... The men grasped his hand in the hands of his, of his family and, and dragged them to safety. For God had mercy on them. When he hesitated. And the third response that we see is Lot's own hesitant response to salvation. And the reality is so often we respond in that way. Judgment is coming. But something holds us back. Something makes us hesitate. Something, I mean... Most, if not all of us, to some extent hesitated, sometimes years, sometimes very long, before we responded to God's offer of salvation, before we heeded the warnings that we must flee the judgment to come. So it, 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 it's, it's not just um, um, Lot who does that. He waited until dawn, and even um, after repeated warnings to hurry, he still hesitated. But then it says the Lord was merciful to him. And had the angels, as it would drag him after, uh, out, of, out of the city. But even after he left the city, the danger wasn't over. The angels say to him, to them, uh, a few things. Run for your lives. Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Make sure that you reach high ground, that you get to the mountains. And even after we have left the world and entered the kingdom, the danger is not over. We do well to heed the angel's warning to Lot and the angel's encouragement to Lot. Flee for your life. Flee the world. 
Because we're, even when you're out of the world, you're still in the world. Because God doesn't immediately, he, he saves us from the world, but he doesn't save us out of the world immediately. And he says, don't look back. But don't wait anywhere in the plain. And, and the lowlands, the plain here represents the area of judgment that deserves judgment, that's going to receive judgment. But go to the mountains, go to the high ground of salvation. And that's what we should do as well. We, you know, the, the, the danger is not over once we've, we've been born again. And, and the other thing that Lot does is he hesitates again, even when they've left the city, and he starts bargaining with the angels. <laughs> he says, no. This, this, um, he, what, what he basically says, what he basically says is something that we often say as well. Not in so many words, but that we so often say is, he says, God, this salvation of yours is too severe. Make it more mild. <laughs> not, not the mountains, this little town, this little village here. And, and so often we want to bargain with God and say, God, don't save me all the way. Don't take me all the way to the mountains. Just take me to this little village. And you know what God does? He says, okay, fine. Just at least go to the village. And we as parents often do this, you know. When, when our kids don't want to eat, and they say, oh, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry, you know. Okay, okay fine, I'll eat the meat, you know, but not the veggies. You say, okay, fine, just eat the meat, you know. Just eat something, you know. <laughs> Maybe after you finish eating the meat, I can convince you to eat the veggies as well. And the irony is, Lot goes to Zohar, if you go and read on the rest of the chapter, but eventually he does end up in a cave in the mountains, exactly where God told him to go in the first place. But so often, ironically, we consider God's salvation too severe. Say, God, you know, we don't tr- the reason is we don't trust God. We don't trust God. That, what he, what, that he knows what's best for us. Notice, just one thing I want you to notice there. It says, the angel says to him something very interesting. He says, I cannot do anything. He says, run. Make sure you go to the city, to this town, to Zohar quickly. Because I cannot do anything until you reach it. What does that show? It doesn't say, I don't want to do anything until you reach it. He says, I cannot do anything until you reach it. That shows you that God is at least as committed to saving the righteous as he is to judging the wicked. At least as committed. Okay. And then the the final response, the fourth one, is Lot's wife. She responded to the warning by looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. There's a A lot of people who, like Lot's wife, get out of Sodom, but they don't get Sodom out of them. It's like with the Israelites. It's easier for God to get the Israelites out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Same with us Christians. It's often easier for for, for the Lord to get us out of the world than to get the world out of us. And so many people respond externally, make the right response, like Lot's wife. They leave Sodom, but they leave Sodom grudgingly because they still love Sodom. All her wealth, all their wealth was there. And and Lot was a very wealthy man, but all of his wealth was in Sodom. They had to flee and leave all of that behind, and she just couldn't. She looked back because she wanted to go back. And she turned into a spiller of salt. 
And they are repeated warnings from the Lord Jesus. If you can just bring up those scriptures in, in, in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 17. Um, Luke chapter is further on. It's, I think it's the second last. There we go. Um, the, the last one here at the bottom, Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, uh, replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So often Jesus warns against that. Don't look back. Because when you look back, it betrays the fact that your heart is longing back to the world and the things of the world. You know, like the Israelites. You know, when we were in Israel, in Egypt, we had meat and cucumbers and, and, and garlic and all kinds of stuff. And now we have this manna, you know, just manna all the time, you know. <laughs> and so often we like that. We laugh at that, but we like that so often. Luke 17, verse 28 uh, to 32 says, uh, It was the the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and uh, and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one uh, who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. See, we, if we so easily grow so attached to the things of the world, to our stuff, that we want to go back for it. You know, you'll, you'll never know. Uh, I think it was Corrie ten Boom that said, You'll never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And, and that doesn't mean you have to physically give up all you have. But that does mean that in your heart you need, to, you need to let it go. Just like Jesus said to the rich young man that, um, that Christo read um, from the Gospels about. We need to let go of those things. Because all, otherwise we'll long back and we'll look back and we'll turn back to it like Lot's wife did. And she turned into a pillar of salt. Okay. Um, Then, let me just, in closing, speak a bit about salvation from God's judgment. Uh, This passage makes it clear that salvation from God's judgment is by God himself. It says in the last verse um, of the passage, in, in verse 29, it says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Who brought Lot out? God brought Lot out. In fact, like Lot, so many of us, in fact, in some ways we can almost say all of us, are as it were dragged kicking and screaming to our salvation. (laughs) God brought Lot out. He had the angel drag Lot out of the city. But why did he save Lot? Why did he rescue Lot? Was it because Lot was such a good man? Now, compared to the men of Sodom, Lot was righteous. Make no mistake, he was a lot better than them. But was he perfectly righteous? I mean, he offered his daughters. He said, yeah, rape them instead. That's also a wicked thing. That's not, I mean, he was, he's, he's by no stretch of the imagination is he perfect. So why did God save him? That passage tells us. The Lord remembered Abraham. Now who was Abraham? Just in context. Abraham was the one, number one, 
who was in covenant with God. Lot wasn't in covenant with God. Abraham was. And number two, Abraham was the one who had interceded for Lot and for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is here only an imperfect picture pointing us towards the seed of Abraham. Because the promise of the covenant was made to Abraham and to his seed. And, and, and Paul makes a big point of it in, in Galatians to say, seed, singular, not seed, plural. One seed. And who was that seed? It was Jesus. The seed of Abraham. The one to whom the promise was ultimately made. And he is the very one, like Abraham, who is in covenant with God. Right? He's in covenant with God. If you, if you just go to the last scripture, the very last scripture, Genesis 15. It says, this is when, when God made a covenant with Abraham. You'll see right at the bottom he said, um, in verse 18, on that day the Lord made covenant with Abraham. But let's just go back and see what happened when God made covenant with Abraham. It says in verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then, you know, quite a few things. He set the pieces of the animals that he had slaughtered out you know, one across the other. It says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, here's the strange thing. When you cut covenant, you took animals and, and, and the Lord said, take, take animals, cut them in half, you know, cut them down the middle, put the pieces next to each other, you know, sort of, you know, the, 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 you know, lambs, the, the, the high furs, the, the birds, and so on. And then what you did was the two parties of the covenant walked through the pieces, and then they pointed at these bloody pieces of animal and said, may the, may the Lord do this to me and worse if I ever break the terms of the covenant. That was part of the cutting of the covenant. But Abraham slept through the cutting of the Abrahamic covenant. Can you see that? Who were the two parties who passed through the pieces? referred to here as a smoking firepot and a blazing torch, representing God the Father and God the Son. God, as it were, made a covenant with himself, which means it's an unbreakable covenant. <laughs> because if we were involved in that covenant, if Abraham were involved, we would break the covenant. But we're not directly involved. God the Father, the fire represented here by the firepot, represents the Godhead. God the Son... The, represented here by the blazing torch, represents humanity. And God cuts covenant with humanity, but he represents humanity. And there's this little piece I don't want you to miss where the angel says to, to Lot, you know, do you have any sons-in-laws or sons or daughters in the city? Anyone else in the city who belongs to you? who belongs to you, who's part of your covenant family. See, that's how the others were saved. But that's also how Lot was saved, because he belonged to Abraham as family. And that's the same way that we are saved. In other words, salvation by association. Not salvation based on our good deeds, but salvation based on our association with the one that's in covenant with the Father. And that one is the seed of Abraham, Jesus. And where Abraham could pray and say, Lord, what if there are 50 righteous in the city? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there's 10? Remember last week? But he had to stop there. 
He, he didn't go, if, what is this one? Because he knew there was no righteous one. But Jesus can intercede and say, Father, what if there's one righteous in the whole world? And then the Father says, well, if he's righteous enough, I will spare them on his behalf. And then Jesus says, I am it. I am the one. He lives ever to intercede for us at the Father's right hand. Saying to the Father, lifting up his hand and saying, look, Father, I've paid the price. See the holes in my hand? I've paid the price for them. I have lived the perfectly righteous life, more righteous than Lot's, more righteous than Abraham's. I've lived it for them. And if we trust in him, the Bible says he's able to save those who trust in him to the uttermost in the book of Hebrews. He's able to save him to the, to the uttermost. Because if we trust in him, we step into covenant with him, then we belong to him. And we are saved through our association, our covenant association with him. And then, when we are no longer at the mercy of this world, we can, like Lot, try to live righteous lives in a wicked world. We must try and live righteous lives in a wicked world because we belong to one who lived the ultimate righteous life in a wicked world. And we want to be like him. We want to honor him. But we should never think that our righteous lives earns our salvation. No, 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 no. His righteous life earns our salvation. But his righteous life also inspires our righteous lives. Because we want to be like him. We want to reflect him. We want to represent him in this world. And that we should do. I just want you to just close your eyes for a moment. And just focus on the Lord. And I want you to consider how do you tend to respond to God's word and to God's warnings? Do you respond like the men of Sodom with threats and intimidation? Do you get angry when, when you are warned about things that you are doing wrong? Do you respond like Lot's sons-in-law? Do you, do you make it all a joke? Do you laugh it off? Is that what you tend to do? Do you maybe respond like Lot himself hesitantly? Remember this morning through the prophetic words we were challenged to not respond hesitantly but to respond decisively, intentionally. Or do we respond like Lot's wife by looking constantly looking back and yearning back, pining back for the things of the world? How do you respond to the warnings? How do you tend to respond to the warnings? Just, just be very honest with yourself. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or to put up your hand or anything. But just be very honest about how you tend to respond. And bring it before the Lord. And say to the Lord, Lord, help me in my response. Be merciful to me like you were with Lot. And teach me, Lord, to respond better, quicker, more decisively to your loving warnings to flee from the world. Just in your own words.
maybe you're here this morning and you've you've never actually made that first response you're still stuck in Sodom you've never actually left but maybe like Lot you become uncomfortable in Sodom and you realize you need to be saved from it you need to be saved from the world like I said Jesus is the one who can save you from the world the only one there's no other who can save you and the only way you can be saved is not by trying to be perfect but by coming and stepping into covenant with him, by belonging to him, by becoming his, his disciple, his follower, his friend. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to that, don't harden your heart. Don't become angry because I say you have sin that you need to be saved of. We all do. Every single one of us. Don't laugh it off. Don't hesitate. And when you respond, don't look back. But if you need to respond, I want to invite you to come and speak to me afterwards and say to me, Henny, please pray with me. I want to respond. I want to, metaphorically speaking, leave Sodom. I want to leave the world. I want to follow Jesus. If you've never done that before or never done it decisively, then you need to do that. Or if you have been a serial backlooker like Lot's wife, then maybe you need to also come back and say I'm making a decisive stand I'm not going to look back anymore you're welcome to come after I've dismissed this this service and and come and pray with me but I want to encourage all of us the quality of our lives in the Lord and for the Lord depends directly on our response to Him Let's make up our minds, metaphorically, as Isan was saying, striking the, the ground with an arrow, not just once, but many times, over and over again, hard, not stopping, saying, I'm not going to just do this two or three times. I'm going to do this over and over and over again until I'm going to keep on responding. I'm going to keep on keeping on, following the Lord. I'm not going to give up. Christianity is not just something I'm trying. what he has made me because I belong to him I belong to him settle that in your heart and mind if you have not already done so Lord God we come to you this morning and we just want to thank you Lord for your loving warnings towards us thank you for your grace by which you soften our hearts and lovingly draw us to yourself thank you Lord that this morning that you, you're even warning us as a, as a congregation, as your people, that our responses to you is too half-hearted. It's too shallow. And we need to respond more decisively, more intentionally, more robustly to you, to your warnings and to your invitations. Lord, help us with that, Lord. We make up our minds, Lord. Lord, we say, Lord, with a song, we have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. The cross before us, the world behind us, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. We will not turn back from following you, Jesus, because you did not turn back from saving us. 
thank you that you gave yourself for us and set the example for us to follow. And we will follow you, Jesus. Lord, I just pray your blessing over every person here this morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you minister to all of us, that you soften our hearts, that you tug at our hearts, and that you draw us closer to you. that you give us a deep resolution to keep following you no matter what no turning back Lord I just pray your blessing over your people in Jesus name in Jesus name this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.